0: There are wonderful churches all throughout Salem in the United States and the world that follow multiple different methods of leading and situating and structuring a church. And all of them may find biblical backing for pieces or maybe even all that they do. The question then becomes, which will work practically? Now, we've spent the last three weeks going through our motivation as church leadership to change some of the structure of Mission Fellowship and why we did that, how we did it, and what our processing was. And those messages are all online. If you haven't heard them, I would highly suggest you go listen to them. And we've answered the questions as to why we thought change was necessary. And we've answered the question of how the church is defined and what part it plays in our lives, bringing about obedience in our lives as Christians. Well, last week we discussed the biblical backing to the idea of the church as a covenant community. Some of you probably, in the midst of Shane's announcement, probably forgot the whole teaching beforehand, and that's okay. That's why we put it out online as quickly as we did. But it's so important to understand the biblical backing behind it because, thankfully, we can rely on that and know that it is an obedient path, just as people who follow a different path in their method of following Jesus are just as obedient. And so today what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with the practical implications that have helped us understand that, yes, there are multiple obedient ways to structure a church, but the practicality of what we're doing today in this age, in this culture, in this time, and especially with the demographic we have in this church, that is the reason, that is the final reason as to why we've changed things. And so we first look at today: How does covenant membership bring about obedience in the life of a Christian? That's the bigger topic, and then we're going to finish the second half with how does congregational authority bring about obedience in the life of a Christian? Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah. Okay. You can say no. Just people might look at you funny, but it's okay. All right. In both of these, we'll look at the practical implications of how these tools—and that's all they are—they're tools. Okay. They're not salvation. Um, They're not the gospel. These tools help us walk in devotion and submission to Christ. Now, I want to be clear, this is one way and one method of how to lead a church. If you haven't heard that from me already, I want to really make that clear. Just like our friend and her two paths that were both obedient, I do believe churches can exist without covenant membership and still be obedient. And so when we as a church leadership wrestled with how to adjust our church structure to address some of the dysfunction that we saw day in and day out, We wanted to look to the Word and understand the basis there, and then from that, we also wanted to look to the practicality. So let's begin with this question. Write this down. Why is covenant helpful for the process of sanctification and obedience? Why is a covenant helpful for the process of sanctification and obedience? Well, again, a covenant is not required for sanctification and obedience the other day I was talking with a friend of mine who uh, is in kind of the same situation I am he has multiple things going on in life a family a job uh, getting his master's same time I am and I said dude how do you how do you stay up on your homework and he's like oh I I don't know it just kind of happens and I looked at him with a big grin and lovingly said I hate you because man, I gotta lay it out. I've got, I've got calendars and structure, and you know, that's what I need. And some people, they can walk in sanctification and obedience, and they don't need the tools that we're introducing to you. That's absolutely true. But as a leadership team, we are under the conviction that for our culture and time, covenant is an extremely important tool in helping to bring about sanctification and obedience. Why is it helpful? Well, the first thing I want to tell you is it's biblical. And to understand that, you got to go back and you look at last week's teaching. It's biblical. We know that. We covered that. But the second thing I'm going to start going through is why it's practical. And the first thing that's practical about covenant is this. People become who Christ calls them to be in the midst of safe relationships. People become who Christ calls them to be in the midst of safe relationships. And you're going to notice, guys, I'm not going to open our Bible for a little while here because I'm going to talk about the practical nature. We will get to the Bible, and I'll open that up when we talk about the congregational structure. But right now, I just want to talk to you just on common sense. We are created to be innately driven by relationship. Even people who are hermits and antisocial, even the Unabomber, right? People who live out in the woods and figure out ways to harm people. They're all driven by relationship. And those people that are harmful, they harm because they've been harmed. They hurt because they've been hurt. They're driven by the result of broken or dysfunctional relationships. Uh, I'm blanking on his name, but one of the mass murderers in United States history, when he was interviewed in prison by uh, James Dobson, uh, James Dobson asked him, when did this all start? And he said, well, actually it started when my father started to distance himself from me. He became very involved. This was one of the biggest horror stories I ever heard because it's very similar to my life. He started to get his degree and he was working and he just didn't have time for his family anymore and I started to notice a distancing in relationship from myself. Right? So I think about that every time I think, oh, should I stay and do homework, or should I go home and play with my kids? I should play with my kids. Because the reality is is that even when we're hurt and we react badly outwardly, it's driven by dysfunctionality in relationships. And the Bible constantly calls us to be transformed and changed according to the grace of God and the Holy Spirit and His Word. But if you're anything like me... If you're just an attendee of the church, you read the Bible once in a while, you're sitting there waiting for the Holy Spirit to hurry up and change you and make you transformed into his image. Why is it not working? I meet with men all the time who sit down in my office and they go, I've been a Christian forever and I can't seem to get past this anger issue. Why do I keep erupting in anger? I sit down with people all the time who are driven by fear or anger in the midst of relationships and they go, why hasn't the Holy Spirit changed me? And what I have to relate to them is that the Holy Spirit wants to help, but the Holy Spirit is contained not only within the individual, but within the church. And so for those relational changes to occur, you have to do it in the midst of relationship. To change, human beings need safety to attempt that change. My wife has been trying to get me to go to one of her workout classes at the gym. And I have said, no go on multiple occasions. Why? Well, because it is not my idea of fun to stand there around a bunch of women who are going to make me look like a total fool. Chauvinist. Yes, I absolutely am in this case, right? Okay? I don't want to be dying when the rest of these ladies are like, what's wrong with him? Right? How fun is it for you to attempt something new? Let's say you get into an aerobics class and they give you your pink leotard, right, or whatever it's called, and you go out there and you realize that this aerobics class is in the middle of a glass room and it's sitting in the middle of a stadium where there are 10,000 people watching and someone gets on the uh, the announcer and he says, everyone pay attention to the person in pink. How many of you would be like, that sounds fun, I want to try that. If you do, I need to see you afterwards because there's probably a personality disorder involved, okay? (laughs) The reality is none of us want to try something new in the midst of something that's unsafe. All of a sudden, a person becomes fearful. Well, guys, the same thing is true in relationships. I've seen it time and time again in the counseling office. I've seen it time and time again in my own life in relationships. It takes a certain amount of relational safety in the form of commitment to attempt to adjust the relational dynamics or to change yourself. In marriage counseling, for example, if two people are sitting down and they're both throwing the divorce word at each other, I have to first get that off the table and I have to get some form of stability in their relationship before I can ever attempt to change either individual. Why? Because they're not going to try to change knowing that the other person could leave at any moment. It's impossible. It creates so many defense mechanisms that walking on eggshells. What holds us back from changing ourselves and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us and change us is a fear of critique that is not motivated by love or results in abandonment. In other words, if I'm waiting for the person to leave, why on earth would I try and change? The greatest fear we have is that someone will dislike us so much that they will leave us. This is at the core of every one of our worst nightmares going to the first day of junior high. I have to do everything perfectly so no one will ostracize me and I sit by myself at the lunchroom table. Well, guys, what do you think the church is other than a glorified version of junior high? I have to be perfect with the Christian smile and sing the right songs and be in the proper subculture so that no one will think I'm a bad Christian and ostracize me and I'll be sitting by myself at church. That's not how God structured it to be. The reason that people often do not speak up and break down these dysfunctional situations, either in themselves or around themselves, is because they know that they'll be ostracized for attempting to adjust the system of that social group. Think about a person growing up in an alcoholic home. Why won't they speak up that their father or their mother's an alcoholic? Well, because everything's fine the way it is. Just don't touch it. Because if somebody speaks up, then that dysfunctional person will get angry, and then the whole system will fail. So what does the church do? Well, the church is just one big glorified dysfunctional family system. If somebody stands up and goes, it's not right that we allow sin to occur in the church. That person becomes the bad guy. I should know. If somebody stands up and says, guys, we can't keep telling the LGBTQ community that they should stop their sexual sin until we address the heterosexual pornography and adultery and lust in the church, I get all sorts of emails from conservative Christians going, oh, you're giving rise to sexual immorality. No, I'm actually trying to remove it from the church in total. See, when you stand up and you say something's got to change, you're actually walking in justice, trying to restore right relationship. And when justice enters into injustice, that's when a breaking down and sometimes even persecution comes. These hurts and traumas that we have suffered in previous relationships then get embedded in the way we relate, and they continue a cycle of mutual harm. I expect that person to hurt me, so I will use my defense mechanism. That person says, I expect that person will hurt me, so I'll use my defense mechanism. And round and round we go. Does that sound like the kingdom of heaven? Each person operating out of their dysfunction and presupposed experience, their basis of fear. The fancy words for these in the counseling community are transference and counter-transference. Let me give you an example. Let's say I'm sitting with someone who looks in age and mannerisms and reminds me of, say, I don't know, an abusive old coach of mine. I will transfer my worries and concerns from prior experience into that present relationship, and I'll act with that person as if they were the abusive coach. I've now locked in the belief that that new person will treat me just like the old. This is called transference. And because I treat that person that way, guess what they're going to do? They're probably going to respond in counter-transference and treat me like the little kid who's trying to tell them what to do. This happens a ton in churches with pastors and congregants. That pastor's abusive, so this one will be too. That church was passive-aggressive, so this one will be too. That that congregant abandoned us or was unteachable, so this one will be too. Transference, counter-transference. Guys, it's been happening for six years, and that's why we want to change. So how do we do our best to defeat transference? Can we get rid of it completely? I don't think so. We're human. But what we can do is stated, agreed commitment. Commitment creates an environment in which those pathologies and dysfunctions can be acknowledged and worked on because the other person will not abandon you if those pathologies come to the surface. See, if I'm sitting in a marriage counseling situation, let's say, and one person says, they always do this. Well, guess what happens the second that person actually starts to try and work through that? See, I told you, I'm out of here. Is that person going to then change? No, they're not. But if that person, that spouse, turns and looks at them and says, honey, I'm committed to you, I love you, I'm not going anywhere, I need this to stop. You can watch the walls melt. And the person start to understand that they need to be a bit vulnerable about change. This is what committed, a stated agreed commitment can do. Now I know that this has been an extremely hard season over the last year. Especially the last six months. As we've changed as a church, a number of people who we love deeply have decided to move on from mission. And that has been heartbreaking and hard for us and for them. And that is why I'm so very thankful for the way that the Withams processed moving on from our fellowship in an honorable and loving way last week. If you missed that, you can go uh, listen to Shane's announcement online at the end of last week's teaching. But what that helped us to do, and I heard from many of you this statement, that it helped us to begin to heal from some of the hurt we have had from others leaving this church without saying a word, or in essence, breaking up with us over text or email. So many of us in this church have hurt from previous churches or Christians, and I am so sorry that that has been the case. The Lord's heart hurts for you, and he paid the price for that relational brokenness and sin. And one day he promises he will come back and fully restore relationships the way that they should be. In the meantime, our desire as a church is that we would be a covenant community a place where people can come and heal in the midst of safe, committed relationships. And while Covenant is not the 100% solution all of the time, guys, I have seen multiple times in the last six years that a stated commitment provides the safety that fosters an environment of healing, more so than everyone walking on eggshells hoping that this church or this relationship will be different. See, all of you come into every new church you go to hoping against hope that this church and this pastor and these people will be different. You just never admit it to yourself. And those of you that are struggling with whether or not this is the church that you need to stay at, that's what is at the core of what's going on. I hurt right now in this church, and maybe if I go somewhere else, I'll finally find happiness and safety. That's the same thing that's at the heart of every multiple divorced person I've ever met. This person is the problem, so I need to move on and find a new person. This church is the problem, so I need to move on and find a new church. Someone has to stand up and say, Enough. Sometimes it's the people involved in the relationship who both have to admit it's time for us to change, rather than trying to find new people in new environments. You see, committing to one another in covenant tells each other that there is room to make mistakes, there is room to grow. What's so funny to me is that people, a few people have talked to me and said, man, this covenant seems like you're not going to allow us to make mistakes. And I kind of chuckle and I go, in fact, actually it's the opposite. It's stating we're committed to each other so that you can make mistakes. And I know you won't leave us, and you know I won't leave you. That's the point of the covenant. You have room to make mistakes. And this is what the true definition of grace is. Grace is not allowing you to keep sinning. It's giving you room to repent. It is not allowing sin to move on without accountability. And we love one another enough to encourage and exhort for the betterment of the relationship and the growth of the individuals involved. In any relationship, if either party is waiting for the one thing that gives them the right to leave the relationship, then that really isn't a covenant commitment at all. And so both parties walk on eggshells, hoping to never make a mistake, resulting in abandonment by the other party. We know that growth only comes through making mistakes, through questioning, through wrestling together through the muck and the mire, and we want to provide this healthy environment for growth in the midst of commitment. If both parties commit to staying together come rain or shine, there is tons of room for failure and mistakes and growth. See, it's the difference of looking at Matthew 18, that section we've gone over a number of times. That covers what most people call church discipline. It's the difference between looking at that as church discipline or church restoration. You see the parable right before Matthew 18, and if you want to, you can go look, so you know that I'm not lying to you. Uh, and the parable right before Matthew 18 is the parable of the lost sheep, and that is taught all the time. I, I've heard it many times taught as this is how we go out and get sheep, guys. That's not a parable about reaching the unlost or, or the lost or the unbelievers. If it were, it would be called the parable of the goats. How to go find a goat and make them a sheep. That parable is about going after a sheep who was part of the fold, who, because of the deceitfulness of sin, has wandered off, and the congregation loves them so much that they won't let them go. Hans, are you saying that you'll never let us go? Go back and listen to the other three teachings. You'll hear me address that. Of course we will, it's your choice. But we will do our best in the midst of it to try and coax you back to Jesus and walking with him. Covenanting together to hold true to this process is not about what will happen when I mistakenly fall into sin. It's about calling our brothers and sisters to protect us from ourselves when we willingly choose to follow the deceitfulness of sin. So that in those moments, we might be reconciled back to the flock. All of this, guys, is for the purpose of reconciliation. It's not for the purpose of punishment. What brings change is relational, a relational combination of a refusal to allow dysfunction and at the same time a willingness and commitment to partner together when dysfunction occurs so that both parties can grow out of that dysfunction. This is why Paul and the author of Hebrews, they talk about, why are you guys staying in immaturity? Hurry up and grow up. That's what the Bible's trying to get you to do. Stop walking in the same bad patterns. That's the Hans version, right? But that's the reality. The author of Hebrews says, why are you sitting in the milk? Why are you debating these old doctrines? Why are you wrestling over words? Grow up and love each other. And man, I want that so badly for this church. Because that is at the heart of the big biblical story of the gospel, this commitment to one another. Yahweh covenants with us from the get-go in faithfulness saying, I will never, what does he say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is that good news to you? Raise your hand if that's good news to you. Praise God it's good news. Because while I was in the muck and the mire and the darkness and the sin, Jesus stood there and said, You want to forsake me, but I will never forsake you. So many refused to accept the gospel, the good news that Jesus hasn't forsaken them, but that he sent his son to die in their place for their sins, that he rose three days later in victory. And he sits at the right hand of God waiting for them to come to him. So many refuse to accept this gospel, not out of rebellion, but out of disbelief that that kind of love exists and is real. What a mission the church has to evidence God's love to a world that needs to see it practically, not just theoretically. How dare we go to the world and say, I follow a God that never leaves nor forsakes. Peace! I follow a God that never forsakes. This isn't quite working out for me, so have a nice life. What kind of evangelism are we doing that we think that the words don't need to match up with the actions? We must understand that people become who Christ calls them to be in the midst of safe, committed relationships. Well, enough beating that dead horse. Next point. Next practical reason why covenant is helpful. You can write this down. Most, if not all, conflict arises out of misaligned, unspoken expectations. The dozen or so of you that have heard me talk about this in premarital coaching, this should still be in your head, hearing my voice saying this over and over again in your coaching sessions. Most, if not all, conflict arises out of misaligned, unspoken expectations. Much of the conflict that I see between leaders and followers in the church or simply between two congregants, is because they have completely different understandings as how to define topics like, what is a Christian? What is a friendship? What's being involved in a church mean? What's tithing? Why does it matter? What's our time, talents, and treasures? And what's so tough is as a pastor, I'll say phrases to you, and there are almost 250 different interpretations of what I say. Be involved in your church. Absolutely, pastor. I'll be here once every six months. Absolutely, Pastor, I'm here every other week. Absolutely, Pastor, I'm here every week and I volunteer as much as I can. That's pretty tough to have that kind of misaligned, unspoken expectation. So what is a very practical way to help alleviate the potential of this issue of misaligned, unspoken expectations? Well, speak them so that we can align on them. Guys, part of the reason our Mission Family Covenant is nine pages and not half of a sheet like a lot of Baptist churches is because I wanted it to be as detailed and meticulous as possible so that there was as little room as possible for misalignment. There are absolutely a few different paragraphs or phrases in there that we will totally be looking at as membership to adjust. Because I've gotten a number of pieces of feedback that this is what this sounds like, and that's not what we intended as leadership. But we're holding true to the stake in the sand for right now so that we can see who's gonna jump in and be members. That membership meeting in April, one of the things we're gonna talk about is how do we go about making sure that all of us agree on this covenant and adjust some of the wording. And guys, this is probably why Paul had to tell Timothy twice when Timothy was trying to restructure the church in Ephesus. Tell them not to quarrel about words. It's a waste of time. Why? Because it's the heart and the principle behind it. It's the commitment. If you're still wrestling with wording, join the club. We are too. And we'll adjust it. But I wanted it to be detailed so there's no misalignment. In doing research and talking to a number of churches that have covenants like what we've put in place, I found that one of the reasons that many of the covenants that exist in churches currently have no teeth and are basically worthless is because they are too ambiguous. Here's an example from a covenant from 1853 that's still in place at a church. We also engage to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment. I don't even know what deportment means. (laughs) And you guys know I'm not a dummy, right? I had to look that one up. Now, that probably meant something to the people of that church in that day in a massive way. So do not hear me as making fun of it from that perspective. That was important to them, and it worked in that day. But that's a bit too ambiguous for me. I have no idea what that means. If you've not already, I want you to go and look at the last chapters of each of Paul's letters. I want you to go and read the Gospels, especially the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to ask the question, did Christ and the leaders of the early church expect Christians to live a certain way? Were there obligations of a Christian? I believe that if you do this and then you go and compare it to the obligations that we've listed in our covenant, you will see that we simply paraphrased in summary language what was already asked of you by Christ himself and by Paul himself. Guys, you're lucky we got nine pages. This thing, mine is, I mean, how many thousands of pages is your Bible, right? Nine pages isn't that bad. I know for myself, I need each of you to help me live according to those expectations that my king has given me. Do you guys want to know a little secret? I'll tell you a little secret. After I finished going through it with leadership and we realized what it was, I sat down with a few beads of sweat dripping down my brow and I read the obligations of congregants and leaders and I went, holy spirit, I'm going to need you in order to live by these obligations. I need to go talk to their pastor because this is making me nervous. Oh, wait, I am the pastor. Dang it. (laughs) Right? But we're called to live by those. The intent was never, ever to regulate behavior, but rather to provide a basic framework for the qualities in which all of us should be growing so that we all have spoken and aligned expectations of each other. Teachers, you know this. When you're teaching somebody, you don't expect the Holy Spirit to automatically insert knowledge of what you're teaching them into their brain. It has to be spoken. That's part of why we're doing a covenant. So it seems to me that the covenant membership is both biblical and practical in these ways. But lastly, I want to talk about this. It's also wise because it's proven so historically. It is proven wise historically. One of our mistakes throughout history is that the generation that is alive currently looks upon previous generations with disdain and thinks, well, we have it all together now. We know better. I mean, we have such amazing inventions like Facebook. (laughs) Founding fathers had nothing on us, right? C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. With the advancement of the social justice gospel in the early 20th century, the beginnings of the parachurch movement in the mid-20th century, and the seeker-friendly movement of the late 20th century, The idea of church covenants and membership fell into disrepute. People began to label it as old, outdated, legalistic, cultic, and on and on. But if one takes an honest look at the history of the church, the idea of a common set of covenant obligations to which a community of believers would adhere and agree is found all over the history of the church. I shared one quote last week from you from the first century, that they had a common oath. The Didache, a set teaching by the 12 apostles, which was used in the 200s and 300s of the church, was a set common understanding of what requirements of believers were outside of the word of God. And what you'll find is that often the loss of this idea of a common set of expectations occurred during times where the worldly system of autonomy and lawlessness crept into the church. And during times where the Spirit of God moved in a community, there was a growth of desire for zealousness in body, life, covenant, commitment, and responsibility of members for one another. Listen to this quote that comes from a witness of the revivals during the Second Great Awakening as they are detailed in the book Revivals and Revivalism. This book details the American church from the mid-1700s to the mid-1800s. Here's what he says. Within a few years, the churches have been so constantly favored with refreshing streams of salvation. Does that sound good? Refreshing streams of salvation? Yeah. And large additions of members. That they seem to view these manifestations as so common that they have neglected to give information to the world that the Lord is among them of a truth. In other words, it was so common that people would join churches and commit to one another and show fruit in their lives because of revival that the pastors were like, well, I guess this is just what the Lord does now. No need to write it down. How amazing would that be, right? Well, the author goes on and he notes this. He says, these statistics are of new communicants and church members. And to understand their significance it has to be remembered that they are not hastily announced figures of converts. The latter practice was generally unknown at this period in the church. In other words, pastors of that day didn't jump on Twitter and go, we saved 30 people today. Aren't we a cool church? No, they waited for fruit to come before they got on the horn and went, look at us, we're so cool. Right? They entered into the amazing work of making communicants, people who were of the church, members. He says the latter practice of converts, of stating converts, was generally unknown at this period. Rather, the churches looked for the evidence of changed lives before permitting additions to their membership. And the belief prevailed that true revival always proved itself by a change in the conduct of a community. Wow. Maybe we've gotten something wrong in our chronological snobbery that all we should care about is conversion and justification and not conversion, justification, sanctification, and glorification. So guys, we've looked at why covenant membership and covenant community are helpful in the life of the Christian as they strive to grow in sanctification and obedience. And again, you may have noticed at this point we haven't opened the Bible yet, but let's jump into Galatians chapter 1 and we're going to move on to the next section here and finish off today with this question. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to finish off with the question, why is congregational authority helpful for the process of sanctification and obedience? It's funny, in that book, just a side note, that book, Revival and Revivalism, over and over again, the witnesses of that day said, yeah, it was pretty bizarre. Nothing actually happened or was special. Like, nobody tried for revivals. It was just a group of people who loved each other and a pastor who taught the Word of God. And that suddenly brought revival. So I have hope. I think Salem can have tons of revival if we as pastors stay true to the Word of God and the people love one another. I see revival in the future of this city. Well, congregational authority. Again, we must understand that this method of church governance is not required. It is one of many methods. And in our responsibility for leading this church as your leaders, we've come to the conclusion that the church structure commonly called by the name of congregational authority or congregational polity, you might hear that word, is biblical and is extremely helpful from a practical perspective. So let's first look at the biblical nature. Let's take a look there at Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. Okay, first, before we read this, who is Paul writing the letter of Galatia to? The pastor of the church in Galatia? No, who's it written to? The people of the church, the congregants, the, the members, yeah, okay? He wouldn't have used those words, but that's what they are, okay? The people that make up the church. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What he was talking about was Judaizers were coming in and saying, you still need to have circumcision and follow the ritual law and do all the ceremonies and the feasts. You have to be Jews. Okay? He says, but even if we are an angel from heaven... Should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The word there in the Greek is anathema, and that is the word that the Catholic Church used to remove someone from their membership. Okay? He's basically saying, kick them out of the church. Realize they're not believers. Now, who bears the responsibility here? Who's he giving the responsibility to to protect the gospel witness of a church? Is it the lead pastor? The people. The whole body of Christ in that area. Realize that most of the letters, the epistles in the New Testament were written to local churches and the expectation was that they all take on ownership of obeying Christ and protecting the gospel witness of that church. And I would say to you, to to do that, you first have to be committed to a church and be involved in a church to do that. So right there, we know that the church bears responsibility, not just the leaders or the single pastor. Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Go to the New Testament in Acts. Acts chapter 6. Give me an amen when you get to Acts 6. And look at verse 1. Acts 6.1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, okay, so you had the Israelite Jews and you had the Hellenistic or Greek Jews that were from outside Israel, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews, both sets were Christians, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. See, in most parts of the world when they do collection of tithe, they give a tithe for the church and the ministry of the church and they do a second tithe for anyone who needs benevolence, including widows and orphans, Okay. So that's what was going on. And then the disciples would take that and distribute it to all the widows, but the Hellenists, a certain group within the church, were being uh, left out. So verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, the full number of the disciples, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Adelphoi, okay, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen and on and on and it tells the names of those deacons. So a group gets together and decides who their servant leaders will be. Guys, who was it that made the decision of who the servant leaders would be? Was it the lead pastor or the leadership? The whole Number of the disciples. The church. The full group of disciples had a voice in selecting and choosing the servant leaders. The biblical model that is given to us is that the congregation has authority in giving their voice to the process of who their leaders are and what the direction of the church should be. Turn with me to the right to Acts 15. Acts 15 and look at verse 22. You see, the reason this is so important to me, guys, is because I came from a model. The Calvary Chapel model is derogatorily stated as the Moses mentality. Because Calvary Chapel believes that an individual is given a certain anointing by God and they should be the one that runs everything. And what I'm trying to point out to you is that that was great for Moses before the truly anointed one, Jesus Christ, came and then distributed evenly leadership and power within the church. And so we are repenting from a model that I believe is unbiblical. (laughs) That's just my opinion. So look with me at Acts 15, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Who was it that chose? The apostles, elders, and the... Everybody say it. Whole church. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. And this was when the church, guys, was in the thousands. Okay? This wasn't just a small group of people. And they sent them with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from among us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions... It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Recognize that, guys. How do they know it seemed good to the Holy Spirit? Because where does the Holy Spirit dwell? As the Holy Spirit dwells in the midst of people, see, look at this with me. This is from. Whoop, whoop, there we go. This is from Ephesians. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in the whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Look at 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Peter wrote this one, not Paul, same language. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's temple language, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Guys, the reality that these two are so similar is because The early church believed that you don't need a building, it's good to have one, but the temple is the people, and the Holy Spirit dwells in their midst and with all of them. And so you can see here, and you can go on and read the rest of it, but they were saying the whole church said this, and so we know that the Holy Spirit was behind it, and the idea was the congregation was taking on responsibility for each other and for the gospel witness and the direction of the church. This idea is very, very biblical. It is not made up in the 1800s. Congregational authority is how the early church, from the earliest of days, functioned. But secondly, not only is it biblical, but it seems to me that congregational authority helps us be led by the Spirit. Janae, can you go two slides forward? My remote just died. There we go. It helps us be led by the Holy Spirit. It's biblical, but it also helps us be led by the Holy Spirit. To be a a truly Spirit-led church, we must allow the Spirit of Christ to have a voice in the direction of the church. And so that is why, guys, we do these scary things that all of you are, are, not all of you, some of you are very scared of, called interviews. And I wish we could come up with a better word. Uh, We're going to call them membership conversations, right? It's not an interview of getting a job, right? A couple people have joked with me, did I get the job? Eh, In a way, yes. Um, But the reality is is that the reason we do interviews is to make sure that we're being led by the Spirit of Christ when all those members get together and speak. Well, Hans, how do you know they have the Spirit of Christ? I don't. So I go off of the qualifications of what the Word tells me. That they know the Gospel. That they have the testimony of the Gospel in their lives. That there is fruit in their lives that shows the presence of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, transformation, repentance, and a desire to make new disciples. And lastly, that they're baptized. So we don't know. It's not like we have special 3D glasses that Patrick and I put on and go... We simply ask questions, and then we say, well, it sounds like they got the Spirit. What do you think? And then we take it to the current member group, which right now is just leadership, and they go, sounds like it, and we put them in place. It's the best possible opportunity for us to understand if we are being led by Spirit-led individuals, and if they're Spirit-led individuals, then we have a Spirit-led body. It's not about being perfect because none of us are. It's about showing the basic qualities of a Christian that has the Holy Spirit as defined by Christ in His Word. I love it when Christians tell me, oh, this church, they're spirit-led. And I'm like, really? How do you know that? You can just feel it when you go in there. I've started to get to the point, you guys know me, I'm slightly slightly sarcastic, where I say, so you mean they have really good worship that touches your heart? And the pastor's a pretty charismatic preacher, that's what you mean? Yeah, and they have cookies too. (laughs) Not kidding. Kelly was sitting at a restaurant recently and she heard this couple talking about a church in town and the thing that sold them on staying at that church was cookies. She didn't hear them talk about teaching, community, or fruit. We live in a consumeristic church culture. The covenant membership process we have helps the leadership and the already existent members to determine based off of biblical principles who exhibits the basic characteristics of a follower of Christ. To be a truly spirit-led church, we want the fullness of voices of the members that have the Spirit of God dwelling in them to be heard. And then not only does it give a voice to each member, it allows the fullness of the Spirit to be heard in leading the church. This is an amazing gift because what happens naturally in using your voice is that you then individually take on responsibility to be part of the body. And our body becomes stronger because of that third reason up there. It reinforces that we are better together than apart. I can't even press this one enough, guys. We are better together than apart. And God, for some reason, has set up our church in a way where we need each other to function. Let me give you a couple examples. Treat yourself is one of the most amazing things. I'm so thankful for for Malia Witham for giving giving us the opportunity to continue participating with her uh, and, and DHS. It would be one thing if mission just took your tithe money and bought treats for all the staff at DHS and delivered them. But the communication of God's love and respect towards them comes in the fact that each of you take your time, energy, and your money to make handcrafted treats to then go and deliver. And when we deliver 50 or 60 handcrafted, individually made treats from people of our church, they don't just look at the person who brought them and go, hey, thanks for dropping those off. You know what they say to us? Your church loves us. If we just went and bought a bunch of stuff from Kroger or, you know, Fred Meyer or whatever and delivered it, they'd be like, oh, hey, thanks. But they look at us and they go, wow, you guys love us, your whole church. We're better together than apart. Another great example is with a recent opportunity that has presented itself. Some of you have heard about it, and I want to make sure and always present things from up front before we do them in community groups or anywhere else. Don't worry, this isn't a bad announcement, okay? Okay. As a church, we have the option to build out the warehouse building that our office is in, as well as the warehouse next to it, to have our own church building. It's an amazingly gracious offer. And we will not, I guarantee you, I've been in business and in the world for a long time, I guarantee you, we will not find another opportunity like this in Salem that will allow us to have a building for such a low cost in an area that needs a church. And still put a good percentage of our funds towards missions and benevolence. It's inexpensive enough that we will be able to do that and keep being the church we are. What we need to do this, guys, because it absolutely will not happen right now with the amount of tithing that goes on in this church. It won't happen. And we'll be, we'll be thankful for this building and we'll stay in the, the school as long as the Lord allows us. What we would need to do that is for every single one of you to take stock of whether or not you take on responsibility for this church and to take on the responsibility of God's call to give generously to what this church is doing. Because it's not the call of the leaders of mission to tell you whether or not we're going to take your money and do what we want with it. It's your call by your actual writing of the checks and giving of the money and then voicing that will tell us that we're allowed to lead in that direction. And so the way you tell us if you want that, and it would be really helpful right now because we're in talks about it, is for you guys to figure out if you can give to that extent. Hans, how much do we need? I'm not going to tell you because I just want you to be generous and see what the Lord does with it. Hans, this sounds very self-serving. Guys, I'm just being honest with you. I'm letting you know what's going on with your church. And if it all fails and we stay here, praise God. That's awesome. We'll keep going the way we are. Both of these examples of treat yourself, and I could go on and on. I could talk about volunteering and helping on Sunday mornings, or set up and tear down, or serving one another within your community groups. All of these examples call each of us individually and as families to participate as members within a body. And you guys, for example, in the building, if you give your money and we see that there's enough room in our budget to actually do this, then we'll tell the owners hey, man praise God, it looks like we might be able to do this. Let's start talking about how it happens quickly. And then in April, when we have our first membership meeting, we say, hey, church, do you want to do this? And if everybody says no, then we go, all right, no. If everybody says yes, then we go, yes, all right, here we go. Because each of us have a voice. Don't wait for someone else to do your part. Each of us must recognize our responsibility in contributing to the whole because we are better together than apart. And hopefully, if you're mad at me about talking about money from the front, you'll give me grace because I'm just trying to be transparent. Lastly, fourth, congregational is practical because it protects us as a body in at least four ways. It protects us as a body. Let's go to that next slide there. Here are the four ways that it protects us. Number one, from potentially abusive leadership. And I do mean potentially abusive leadership. Every human being has the capacity in themselves to be abusive, myself and our leadership included. One of the final reasons that our leadership felt so assured that this is the proper way to go in leading this church is after watching a number of churches that we know that are in our area and even nationwide mishandle abuse by their leaders. In this age of the hashtag MeToo movement and the abuse of the trainer for women's gymnastics, people are quickly realizing that an institution that does not give voice to its members has the potential to abuse those members. And if you're a visitor, guys, I want you to take this back to your church because I am tired of hearing about churches mishandling abuse in their churches. The church has zero witness because we propagate a system in which men and sometimes women are held in such celebrity status that people allow them to get away with absolutely horrendous sin. Now, the good news is that not every institution that has the potential to abuse does. But at Mission Fellowship, our leaders desire to remove as much possibility for abusive power to exist as we can. Guys, it's the reason we have such such tight security measures in kids' wing. I know some of you have gotten upset with us. I got to get a bracelet. I got to do this. I got to do that. Guys, when I was a deacon and I had to chase a father who had recently left his family, I had to chase him down in the parking lot and tackle him because he had taken his child from class to steal that child away from its mother, you'll recognize that there's a reason churches put barriers in place, and it's for our safety. Congregational authority is the same way. It's one of the ways we do this. At the end of the day, you, the congregation, hear me, you need the power to fire me. You need the power to fire me. If the congregants of a church do not have the power to fire their pastor, I suggest you run from the building. Without congregational authority, an unhealthy power dynamic exists. And I don't want to be part of that at Mission Fellowship. I want you to help me so that I never abuse you. Secondly, it protects all of us from abusing one another. As I've said before, passive aggressiveness is a cancer that plagues the church. Can I get an amen? amen? Paul commands the church to speak the truth and love to one another. There is no room for a lack of assertive, loving communication to the people around you in the midst of the church. Guys, if you are struggling with something, it is a command of Christ and his apostles to go to them. It literally is a command. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Guys, I want you to come to me. I have a very thick skin. I recognize that I say stuff and do stuff that some of you will interpret as hurtful and I need you to come to me because I'm so saddened and heartbroken when I hear six months later that somebody left the church because somehow I said something that harmed them and they never came and talked to me and I'm going, gosh, I would have liked to have seen them face to face and apologized. I speak for an hour every Sunday. I'm bound to make some really bad mistakes with my voice. And so we need to do this. This culture we are building of congregational authority gives each of us an expectation and responsibility to lovingly go to our brother or sister, to talk with them so that we might keep short relational accounts with one another, not letting sin or bitterness grow. To not do so is to willingly refuse obedience to Christ our King. But guys, let me reinforce this. This is the reason why congregational authority and covenant membership have to exist. If you take on congregational authority and you say, yes, I like this idea, I'm going to go tell so-and-so, what for? Frank, I'm so angry with you. The first question Frank should ask you is, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, do you even have a place in my life to speak? Because I don't even know if you love me enough to be committed to me. Is this coming out of bitterness and anger or out of a love for me? Well, how do we let people know that it comes out of a love for them? By telling them beforehand that we're committed to them to help them walk in sanctification. Covenant membership and congregational authority have to go hand in hand. We want to lovingly help one another walk in the light of Jesus Christ, not letting sin and bitterness grow. To not do so, guys, to keep going to church and kind of going, yeah, I know Jesus tells me to do that, but it's no big deal is to willingly refuse obedience to Christ our King. Well, thirdly, it protects us all from wolves gaining influence. In our previous model, anyone who showed up and attended on a Sunday gathering theoretically was a member of our church. What that allowed for was people who had ill intentions toward the members of our body to operate as just another sheep in the midst of our church. And then when it finally became apparent to our leadership that there were issues of pride or sin or rebellion in the life of that person, They had already grabbed influence of other sheep and slowly but surely pulled them away from a church that loves them dearly. And those wolves are still active. There's only a few of them, but they're still active. To have a gate, so to speak, in which our elders are able to have a pointed conversation with every person that wants to be a part of the sheepfold, it allows us to have at least one check in place to deal early with wolves because I guarantee you that a person who is a wolf will not want to sit down with me and Patrick. And if there is a person who is trying to gain influence in our church but is unwilling to submit to one another as Christ calls us to, guys, it should be a massive red flag for all of us that there's something underneath that is not good. It may not be evil intent. It may not be that they're a wolf, but it may mean that there's such intense brokenness that they're unwilling to work on that they don't want to step into covenant commitment. And you might say, Hans, that sounds like an ultimatum that we have to step into covenant commitment. No, it doesn't. But guys, I've been going through this long enough that I know that for those of you who don't want to, it's not because of a positive reason, it's because of a negative reason. Past harm, past hurt, past trauma, or fear or lack of trust. And that's why I want to give you room. If you're a person who says, I still need more time, Hans, to see if I trust you and the leadership. This has been a rocky rollout. I want to take some time. I praise God for that. So don't hear these comments as about you. Hear them about a person who says, commit? I would never commit to anyone. Now we have a problem. Either way, we as a church need some level of protection from a person gaining that much influence. Lastly, and fourthly, it protects us from ourselves. As you've hopefully heard throughout the teachings thus far, one of the biggest reasons we need each other is to protect us from the deceitfulness of sin. And the book of James is clear that sin does not come from out there. It comes from within ourselves. One of my favorite quotes, I've used it before, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he says, the line between good and evil runs through the human heart. And so stating boldly a commitment to care for one another and walk with one another through thick and thin gives us all the unimaginable hope that even if we should be deceived by sin, we won't be left alone to tackle Satan's devices. I, for one, find that a huge comfort as I have known what it is like to lie to myself in a way that allows me to continue in sin. I'm so thankful for brothers and sisters that have taken on a commitment to me, to help me. You know, it's so interesting. This is not in my notes. I'm going to just go off the cuff here, which always gets me in trouble. So I ask your forgiveness ahead of time. You've known me for six years, some of you. I have massive pathologies, massive brokenness, massive relational hurt. I am one of the biggest babies when it comes to sensitivity. Early on in building the church, you can ask my wife, every single criticism or comment or even question made me turn into a a fetal position and hurt and feel like I was harmed. And I had some really great friends tell me, Hans, you either need to get a different job or grow up. And so I've been working really hard, and hopefully you've seen it over the last six years, going to school, getting counseling, trying to walk as a human being that needs to grow and make mistakes. And what's so cool is I can now sit amongst our leadership circle who, just so you know, are not like-minded at the core. We're all very different people, but we have one accord in leading this church. And whereas before, if someone would make a, a statement that would feel like critique, I would respond and lash out and be angry and frustrated, that's not happening anymore. For one reason, I know that those men and women in leadership and staff are with me through thick and thin And they love me so much that they're going to continue to give me room to grow. And in so doing, I'll reciprocate. That small group of 20 people has shown me that this works in spades. And I am so, so hopeful for watching it work for all 260 of us. I know it will because I've seen it happen. I also know it will because I've seen some of you who have had such amazing testimony in this church, not because of the teaching or because of the communion or because of the worship, but because you've come and sat in those membership interviews with tears streaming down your face and said, it was in the biggest, most horrific tribulation that we have suffered as a family or as an individual that I watched the people of Mission Fellowship not forsake me, but love me and allow me to start growing and healing that has given them the witness of Jesus Christ in the gospel. I've seen this happen, guys. I just ask you to take part in it. And so, as you ponder and consider whether or not mission is the community with which you desire to pursue sanctification, I again want to emphasize that there is no pressure to get you to covenant. I've had my say now. It's biblical, it's practical. You've seen the basis of it. You've seen our motivation. If you still disagree with it, like we said, it's okay, We want to pray for you, we want to love you, and we want to send you on with blessing. If you want to stay and keep watching and seeing and seeing what the fruit of it is, then praise God for that. If you do uh, that, then take as much time as you need to visit with our community and be fed by the teaching. For those of you that are still processing, I pray that as you process, you would mourn the adjustment of relationships with those that have left and that you would find healing. For those that have left, I would ask that you join me in praying that they will land at a church where they will grow. But for the large amount of you that are desiring to jump into covenant faithfulness with one another, I am excited to see the fruit that the Lord is bringing in the midst of your commitment to one another. I'm excited to pursue sanctification with you in the coming years. And I am excited to watch the way in which that very practical love for one another will show the world that we are Jesus' disciples and attract them to his kingdom. Let me conclude with this benediction from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians as my blessing upon you and my hope for you. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you.